0: Hello and welcome to episode 213 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. Remember to follow Turkey Book Talk over at Twitter, aka X, Instagram and or Facebook. There's Blue Sky as well for anyone who's on there. In this episode, we speak to Ilkai Yilmaz. She's a research associate in the Friedrich Meinecke Institute at the Free University of Berlin and the author of Ottoman Passports, Security and Geographic Mobility, 1876 to 1908, published by Syracuse University Press. The book takes us back to the era of Ottoman Sultan Abdul Hamid II, the Hamidian era, a period of increased paranoia among the authorities in Istanbul about various nationalist, anarchist and revolutionary movements shaking the control of the state throughout the empire. Ilkay Yilmaz focuses particularly on the Armenian and Macedonian questions, showing how in response, the Ottoman state introduced various passport and travel permit restrictions, tighter regulations aimed at increasing efficiency, understanding, and ultimately control of subjects. Of course, parallel processes were also developing elsewhere in major European states at the time, as the central authorities confronted the peculiar challenges of modernity by ramping up measures to control and surveil various perceived internal and external threats. Ilkay Yilmaz's book shows how the Ottoman Empire fit into this broader developing European security framework at the time, and we talk about that and much else in our conversation. But before we get started, let me appeal once again for support. It takes a lot of time and effort to read all these books, prepare the podcast, edit it and piece it all together and I do need listeners' support, your support, to be able to keep doing it. Since launching the podcast back in 2015, we've given a platform to researchers and authors working on Turkish history, politics, society, literature and the arts. Turkey Book Talk is completely independent with no sponsorships. It depends 100% on the goodwill of listeners like you. So if you are able to support please consider becoming a Turkey Book Talk member on Patreon. Supporting on Patreon isn't just a nice thing to do it also gets you some pretty good extras. Those extras include a terrific 35% discount off the price of all books published in IB, Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. As a member you get a special code to use at the online checkout and you can use it to purchase any of hundreds of Turkey and Ottoman history titles either as an old-fashioned physical book or as an ebook. Turkey Book Talk member members also receive a PDF transcript of every interview as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews, including previously unpublished extras. And finally, to members, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, 3 €3 or £2.50 per episode. You can pledge more if you want, but so long as you pledge, three dollars three euros or two pounds fifty or above per episode membership is entirely at your own discretion it's inflation proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached you'll be free to sign off whenever you want but now onto our conversation with Ilkay Yilmaz the late 19th century in the Ottoman Empire was an age of nationalist movements lost imperial territories and anarchist agitation Yilmaz writes in the book that territories lost in the Middle Eastern Europe intensified paranoia around security matters. Among the Ottoman elites at the time. So I started by asking her to paint a general picture of the gloomy atmosphere among those around Abdul Hamid II and why they wanted to ramp up state controls.
1: I mean, actually, it's a very interesting historical period, the reign of Abdul Hamid II. So, I mean, it starts from 1876 to the Young Turk Revolution, actually, 1908. So, I mean, on the one hand, we have this very intense international or inter-imperial competition over the lens of the Ottoman Empire. But on the other hand, we we also see the continuity of the modernization reforms and administrative centralization during the reign of Abdul II, which were actually the main principles of Tanzimat reforms during his long reign. But he also prorogued the parliament and suspended the constitution And then, you know, we also see the use of pan-Islamism as a legitimacy policy, right? So, I mean, on the one hand, you know, we can see this improvement of infrastructures like, you know, railways, telegrams, education and bureaucracy provided the means of modern state and the, you know, the states to become more visible in the provinces throughout the empire. But, I mean, as you mentioned, you know, when you look at the inter-imperial competition, especially, you know, after the Ottoman-Russian War, a new era that began with the Berlin Treaty came to deeply dominate the security perceptions and practices of the Ottoman Empire, especially in two frontier regions, right? Macedonia and the six provinces in the Ottoman East. So, in line with the Berlin Treaty, in the wake of the loss of Eastern European territory, the Ottoman Empire was forced to enact administrative and security reforms under great power surveillance in Macedonia to improve living conditions for the Christian populations, as well as in, six pro- in the six provinces of Eastern Anatolia to protect the Armenian population from the attacks of Kurdish and Circassian tribes. So, I mean, during the 1890s, I mean, after the Berlin Treaty, and especially during the 1890s, the threat perception of the political elites was strongly influenced by the Armenian and Macedonian questions. Because, I mean, according to them, both of them, I mean, both the Armenian or the Macedonian question could be used as a pretext for foreign intervention. And, I mean, during the 1890s, the Ottoman state and its security policies focused on these two questions. So the, the Hamidian era was marked both with both state oppression and also, you know, the massacres and political violence, which was evident with popular uprisings, guerrilla warfare, ethno-religious conflicts, and the acts of propaganda by deed. And in the 1890s, the violence became more intense in addition to ordinary state violence. I mean, ordinary state violence accelerated and improved its organizational capacity, which changed the level of violence in daily life. And violent acts, which were deployed as a strategy of resistance by the revolutionary circles, also became a form of political communication and were performed to claim an alternative political legitimacy, especially in Macedonia and later on in the eastern provinces as well.
0: I want to come on to that. Armenian revolutionary groups loomed particularly large during this period, and in response, the state sought to strengthen police networks, methods of social control. You talk in the book about how the Ottoman bureaucracy's security discourse not only created an atmosphere of fear of a permanent political threat, but also led to discrimination based on the suspicion that every Armenian could be associated with a revolutionary organization. So this was the general kind of atmosphere around the end of the 19th century. It was a very febrile atmosphere. Could you just talk about what that meant in practice, how this perception became so widespread at the time and what the implications of that were on this question of Armenian groups, nationalist groups and revolutionary groups?
1: This period actually, not only in the Ottoman Empire, but generally like, you know, in the in the wider European settings, including Russia, this period also marked with widened attacks conceptualized as propaganda by deed. Bomb attacks, assassinations, later on they were conceptualized as terror methods. And the ideology and discussions on propaganda by deed were also spreading with mobile groups, right, individuals, as well as the printed web media. And of course, you know, these periods that, you know, Macedonian and Armenian revolutionary groups, they were also present. They were also active in the Ottoman Empire and already established inside and outside the Ottoman Empire too. I mean, they were also, there were also this, the, the diaspora networks between those groups. And these organizations introduced socialism into the Macedonian and also the Armenian questions. Furthermore, their political programs were mostly in line with a political agenda that aimed to reach political freedoms and in some cases also national independence through revolutionary action. So, by the early 1890s, the situation had grown increasingly intense, both in Istanbul and in the eastern provinces in the means of Armenian question. So, I mean, we see the Hamidian massacres of Armenians in 1894-96, and it, this period generated a new level of violence, especially towards the Armenian peasants. So, the inchakian Revolutionary Party and Dashnak Sutyun, the Armenian Fe- uh, Revolutionary Federation, sought to use of violence as a revolutionary method and as a strategy of resistance to change the statistical for the Armenian poor during the 1890s. The thing is, of course, there were revolutionaries in the Ottoman Empire. Actually, I mean, the, the first wave of revolutionaries, they were mostly coming from Russia. So they were mostly Russian subjects. But then, you know, they managed to organize and develop their networks and so on. But still, it's interesting to see in the documents that what was happening in the ground and what was written in the in the correspondence, there was this over-representation of the revolutionary groups, especially in the diplomatic correspondence of the Ottoman Empire. So it's it's something else, right? So it's also part of the securitization of the Armenian question by saying that, you know, quote-unquote, there is sedition or the revolutionary sedition in those areas. There was this political agenda about social or anarchism, so it was also forbidden in the European governments and so on, and so forth. So it was also a way of creating a legitimacy in the means of diplomacy by overemphasizing or over-representation of those revolutionary parties. But on the other hand, yes, I mean, there were also violence as a method in revolutionary movements. Or a strategy. So, I mean, the the Hunchakian Party and Dashnaktsutyun they also sought to use of violence as a revolutionary method and as a strategy of resistance to change the status quo for the Armenian poor. And the Hinchaks recruited members from among the Armenian seasonal workers who came to Istanbul from the provinces, from the eastern provinces. So, various actions in the Ottoman Empire were inspired by the Russian revolutionary organization, especially the Narodnaya Volya. And such instances which attracted international attention included the occupation of the Ottoman bank, the attempted assassination of Armenian patriarch Ashikyan, the Kunkapu demonstration, Thessaloniki assassinations, and the assassination attempt on Abdülhamit II.
0: As you say there, I mean, of course, some of these groups were committing bombings and assassination attempts to very nearly reach their target. And this was a thing, this was a broader theme across Europe, actually, at the time. Bombings, attempted assassinations, terror acts in major capitals across Europe, including Istanbul. You write in the book that The late 19th century was a period when the use of explosives and organized actions, including assassinations within the empire, attempted assassinations of Abdul Hamid II by Armenian and Bulgarian revolutionaries proliferated. So looking at that, the paranoia wasn't entirely baseless on the part of the state elites.
1: You know, when, when you look into deep to those questions and also the archival materials, you also understand that there is a real problem with the capacity of the state. So the main problem was, quote-unquote, the state infrastructure or, you know, the state apparatus was not strong enough to govern some specific areas in a legitimate or peaceful way. So that's why there was this extreme use of State violence or coherence, maybe we can say. So on the one hand, there is this huge legitimacy problems, especially when you look at the tax regulations and then, you know, afterwards the, the rebellions and so on. The main problem was that the state itself, the Ottoman state itself or the Ottoman governing center itself was losing its legitimacy in the provinces. For example, when you talk about, or you know, when we talk about the Armenian question, actually the Armenian question started with Tanzimat period because of the centralization efforts and, you know, the eliminations, the elimination of the Kurdish mirrors or, you know, principalities, maybe we can say, I mean, it's the decentralization efforts. It also created a, a vacuum for power a vacuum of authority, and it created this violent atmosphere, especially against these settled peasants who who were doing agriculture, and they were mostly the Armenians. And the problem was actually the attacks towards those peasants. But instead of solving this problem, the Ottoman government for years, they just ignored it because they didn't have the power to solve this problem in a way. And at the end, like, you know, like 30, 40 years later, it became an issue in international diplomacy, which triggered another level of, quote-unquote, securitization of the issue. But before, I mean, before the Burden Treaty, we can still see these petitions from both Armenian Patriarchate and also the Armenian peasants to the Ottoman government to solve this problem. I mean, the problem of writtenized violence, And for the Macedonian question, the the thing is like, yes, there were nationalist movements, that's true. But the problems, the problems in the backstage, they they were actually there for years and they were mostly ignored or because of this limited capacity of the state, they were just not solved in a way.
0: Yeah, that question of state capacity and limits to it. And the effect of that and the way that the state tried to address that issue during this period is a central theme in the book. You describe how the Ottoman government and particularly its perception of threat from various groups, actually that threat perception was the main instigator behind the introduction of various identity documents, internal passports, international passports as tools basically for labeling specific groups. And you place that in the context of a wider process of expanding state administrative power in the late 19th century and the Hamidian era. So filing, encoding, storing information on people and expanding or trying to expand the administrative power, that being characteristic of this period in the Hamidian area. And it's also a time when there was this beginning really of the institutionalization of social services, social security, police forces. And therefore, you know, the use of identity cards, passports, residence documents, All these records that were emerging were part of the way that the state tried to increase infrastructural capacity and create a space really for the administration, more effective administration of society. So just talk about that process of standardizing information, categorizing society as part of this much broader increased desire for control at the time among the state elites.
1: Yeah, the interesting part of the Ottoman case is actually the Ottomans during the Midian era they were trying to use both the traditional social control mechanisms and the modern techniques of identity together. So, in a sense, it's like I don't know, like you know, when you look at the European examples, it's a bit different. And of course, it's it was a multi-confessional empire, right? So, the identity, how they defined the identity, was also different than the nation states. So, according to legal institutions and bureaucratic practices. The fundamental conditions of recognition of individuals by the state, I mean, by the Ottoman state, were local belonging to a religion or to a neighborhood, which directly affected the regulations on identity and also passports. So, on the one hand, there were these documents, population documents, or, you know, the population registers. And those registers, they were composed of the imp- information from village or neighborhood registers. And they had to include the nation affiliation, millet affiliation, according to the religious background of the person. And also included birth, death, and sometimes the migration data. And according to the new system created after the Tanzimat, the head of the village or the neighborhood heads, or the religious leaders of the neighborhoods had to register this standardized identity information and send that information to the local population registry offices. This was the new thing. So the most significant oral record-keeping practice back then as a traditional social control mechanism, it was the Sureti system, the guarantor system, which was based on guarantorship. This system was mainly aimed at controlling peasants' mobility, and it was actually very similar to what was happening in Russia back then as well. So, And it was generally used alongside the internal passports, which can be traced back to the 16th century, actually, in the Ottoman Empire, but was not regulated until 1841. So if someone had to prove his or her identity, or that he or she had to had to leave the residence for an acceptable reason, the person had to provide a guarantor to witness their identity or to ensure that they would continue to fulfill public duties such as paying taxes and so on, and as part of the nation system, the millet system, so for proof of identity, the individual had to get an, another document. Actually, it's called in mohabar and it's like a letter. It was like a letter used as the proof of the person's good behavior from a religious leader or neighborhood head or caretaker of an inn and so on. And in some cases, this letter was written by the elders of the village as well. And with the population registration law, it also changed. So this letter, it was like a letter of good behavior or I don't know, like a reference letter maybe. But it it was also modernized through the reforms on the population registration administration and identified as special information certificates in line with the updated law. And it had to include the name, date, and place of birth and that marriage, divorce, as well as the names of the mother, father, siblings and children of the of the person. So you know, with all those documents, registers Or, you know, with the internal passport regulation, again, in 1887, we also see how how the state identified individual identities and regulated the internal mobility within the Ottoman Empire. And also, you know, with the passport codes, the international passport codes, we also see these changes, like, you know, how they define a person which information did they want to file and how they create created those personal or family files, how they archived them. So, I mean, it was all this very big process of bureaucratization of the state in a way, I mean, in a very modern way, of course.
0: Another thing to note is that a lot of the discussions and a lot of the measures that were being taken in the Ottoman Empire took place in a much broader context as well, because these things were also shared. This perspective was also shared with other European states that were also taking similar measures that also had similar concerns about revolutionary groups anarchist groups the ottoman empire basically shared a concern with other european powers to counter these perceived threats posed by these kind of anti-state forces and the ottoman state shared many of the same anxieties as its Peers in europe and indeed cooperated with uh, those states in many ways so could you just talk about that you know how this broader context of how the paranoia over these uncontrollable elements that posed a threat to the state how that was shared not just in the ottoman empire but in many other states across europe at this time
1: so, I mean, it's, it's really interesting to see this, you know, trans imperial connections or, you know, connected histories of policing, passports, and also, you know, the threat perceptions. So, I mean, in Europe, actually, when, you, when you look at the 19th century, 19th century saw the breakdown of the statistical, right? There was this process of the rebuilding of the social order in a way, like, you know, the popular call for greater involvement in political process. And I mean, in most of the cases, they were expressed via the exercise of genuinely radical policy instruments, because obviously, you know, the channels of representation in the means of, you know, political representation or, you know, policymaking, they were mostly blocked for ordinary people, especially for the lower classes. And the elites made sense of such demands by recourse to concepts of disorder and anarchy and so on so it was these ongoing conflicts so the police oriented regulations to maintain public order were put into effect so one of the one of the significant political moments of the era was the anarchist moment. The, the anarchism, I mean, advocated a stateless society. And of course, you know, there were different anarch, different kinds of anarchisms and they had like different kinds of groups in different countries. So it was actually really, really diverse fight. But the turning point About the perception of anarchists or, you know, the anarchist movements, actually it started with Felice Orsini's attempt on Napoleon III's life in 1858. Actually, it was a failed assassination attempt, but still, you know, it was quite important. It was quite uh, significant. And, you know, especially, you know, from the mid-19th century on, we see numerous dynasty members and high-ranking bureaucrats faced assassination attempts whose alleged perpetrators were people from the anarchist movement. There were like these three unsuccessful attempts on the life of Charles Alexander II. And these were like in the headlines of nearly every newspaper in Europe and in Russia. And he was killed, at the end, he was killed with a bomb by the Russian revolutionary organization, Narodnia Volya in 1881, I think. And having seeing those... Attempts or, you know, assassinations in Russia and Europe. Actually, such acts of violence came to affect the entire world and overshadowed the second half of the 19th century in that sense. Some scholars call those incidents or, you know, this period as the terrorist wave. And it was generally defined by bombings and assassination attempts. And the police and the other government bodies adopted the public imaginations, widespread tendency to identify anarchists as bombers or terrorists. So whenever there was an incident like this, In the headlines of the newspapers, especially in Europe, they were blaming, quote-unquote, anarchists. But I mean, coming back to your question, of course, you know, these assassination attempts or, you know, these violent uh, attacks, they gave rise to two major discussions about public order and internationalized internal security concerns. So, the legislations addressing acts by individuals residing within one country against another country's residents And the status of political refugees accused of plotting to assassinate other countries' heads of state, those were very important issues back then. And high-profile assassination attempts also, I mean, it was spreading from Russia to Italy, Germany, Austria-Hungary, Spain, Iran, Belgium, even in the United States. And they became a regularity during the era. They were not all committed by the anarchists per se. Other political movements used them as well, but they were known with the movement, with the anarchist movement. And at the end, in 1898, the Empress of Austria-Hungary, Elisabeth, she was assassinated in Genoa by an Italian anarchist, Luigi Luciani. And after this, the Italian government invited other governments, other states to Rome, to the conference in Rome, which was actually a conference for quote-unquote social defense against anarchism. It was so interesting, you know, in this conference, there were like different representatives from different police departments all around Europe and also Russia, Ottoman Empire was also part of this, by the way. And they were sharing the knowledge and information about the new policing techniques they try to find new ways to standardize the procedures in the means of policing and surveillance including passport regulations by the way and you know identification of of suspects Extradition of criminals and so on. So identity cards, passports, certificates of residence. They were all very well related to the administrative record keeping processes and, uh, you know, the bureaucratic mechanisms for identity, identifying individuals. And it's also interesting, like, you know, when you look at the li- literature now, I mean, most of the historians who, who are working on these issues, they see this first conference the Conference of Rome as the as the first conference of the process of founding Inter Interpol. So there was another conference in 1904 in St. Petersburg, like as a follow up conference and Ottoman Empire was also part of it. But yeah, I mean, on the one hand, like there were these like attempts or, you know, attacks or the use of violence on behalf of some political movements, but on the other hand, we also see this, you know, changes in the state structure. And it was not only about the domestic policies, of course, it was this transnationalization or transnationalization of the methods of surveillance or, you know, punishments and so on.
0: And just to conclude, obviously, some of the themes that we're talking about here are still very timely today. This isn't something that was buried with the period that we're talking about. This era of passports, era of increased control over mobilization is obviously still a current one. And states, of course, try in many different ways to control populations, control population movements. Could you just talk about that, you know, how your research reflects on the present day and some of the concerns there?
1: Yeah, thank you for the question. I think it's, it's really important to see, you know, how those historical experiences are still relevant. So actually, I, I think, you know, the first wave in like, you know, using the passports. For marginalization of some certain elements, or you know, criminalization of some certain identities, actually, I mean, yeah, I mean, the Rome Conference maybe it's the first wave, but the second wave is, I think, what happened after the attacks on the United States on September two thousand one nine eleven. So you know. The legitimization of the tools for new new global passport technologies, such as digital biometric passports and entry regulations. It's really int- interesting. Like In Turkey, Turkey is part of the Interpol system, as Russia and China. And they're all part of this digital passport database of the Interpol. And after, after the failed coup d'état in Turkey, it's so interesting that, you know, more than, I think, 2,000 people, without informing any of them, the Turkish government just put a note in, on their passport reg- registers as those passports were lost or damaged, which means, you know, they could not use their passports Very similar thing happened in Russia, especially for the people who are in opposition of the, of the government. And it's so interesting. Like, you know, how these administrative structures today, they're like very, I mean, they're very digitalized and also they also involve the biometric, biometrical data, right? How they could be used as part of the authoritarian tendencies in a way.
0: That was Ilkay Yilmaz. Many thanks to her for joining for episode 212. Remember, we do need your support to keep Turkey Book Talk going and you can give that support by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member on Patreon. Membership gets you a 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Tourism Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, 3 €3 or £2.50 per episode do also rate the podcast or write a positive review on your favorite podcast app spread the word give us a shout out on your social media accounts follow via our website turkeybooktalk.com our twitter or x facebook or instagram accounts or all of them follow me william armstrong on blue sky recommend turkey book talk to a friend or a foe and i always enjoy hearing from listeners so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com finally let me once again remind you to check out a friend of turkey book talk turkey recap turkey recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in turkey over the past seven days links to interesting articles and some excellent puns they've got a slack channel for signed up members who want more and they also publish high quality original on the ground reporting just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe but until our next episode of turkey book talk in a couple of weeks thank you very much for listening Thank you.